So we're looking at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we're beginning to look at the first six verses this evening. So before we do that, let's pray again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. We pray for your help in understanding it. That there are some deep issues here. And we pray that you'd help us to really grasp them. Some of them we've touched on already in chapter 6. But Lord, help us, as Paul summarizes here, to really grasp what he has been saying. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul finishes chapter 6 by saying, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress, if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So we've been looking at the book of Romans, and we've been seeing Paul... Um, unfold the depths of the the problem of mankind uh, in all his godlessness and unrighteousness uh, way back in chapter 1 and onwards. And from there he begins to unfold in chapter 3. He unfolds the the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it is the unique solution to the problems of mankind. Um, And how the gospel brings glorious freedom and liberty uh, to the Christian believer as they put their faith in Jesus Christ and his work. And we've seen this liberty in various ways already. Um, In chapter 5, we saw that the Christian believer is freed from the wrath of God. So if you look back to chapter 5, verse 9, this is what Paul says. If I can see it. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. So we're justified, the wrath of God is removed, Christ is the propitiatory sacrifice, he has taken the wrath of God for us uh, in our place, and, uh, and therefore we are justified and we're free of the wrath of God, it's a glorious truth, so that's one liberty. In chapter 6 we saw that the Christian believer is also freed From the dominion of sin. In other words, uh, sin does not rule over you. It has no authority over you. It does not determine your ultimate destiny any longer. 
It is not your king. It's like you have, uh, you were once under the dominion of sin, as it were, you were living in another country, a, a foreign country, and now you're living in the country of grace, the kingdom of God. And so that country that you were in before has no authority over you any longer. Because you're in that place of grace. You stand in that place of grace, as Romans 5.1 tells us. And so we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, transported to this new country. And we have this new king, Jesus. Not the king of sin, but King Jesus. That old king, sin, is broken we are no longer obliged to submit to its demands. And the reason that Paul can say all that, of course, is that in Christ's death, 2,000 years ago, we died. And when he was raised to life again, we were united to him in a resurrection like his. Something happened to us. That bondage that we had to the dominion of sin was broken but now we're bound to Jesus Christ and slaves to righteousness. So we're freed from wrath and we're freed from the authority of sin. But now as we enter into chapter 7, we find that there's another freedom into which the Christian enters. A curious thing where it says we, are free, uh, we have freedom from the law. And he's already uh, touched on this uh, back in chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but you're under grace. Not under law, but now under grace. And he wants to develop that idea further now in chapter 7. How are we free from the law? In what sense... Are we free from the law? And Paul summarizes in verse 4, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I need to tease that out somewhat, and Paul teases that out for us. So let me begin this evening just by talking about the trouble with the law. The problem with the law. And we need to, I think, understand what Paul is, is doing here because maybe the question for us is why care about the law so much? Why does Paul care about the law so much? And, of course, the, the, the immediate reason for Paul is he knows that there are Jewish converts in, in the church uh, who are very steeped in the law. And so they need to have that explained to them. And uh, you know, if you know anything about Jews, then the, the the law, at least devout Jews, the law is a big concern. And Jesus, if you remember, was continually being asked questions by the Jewish lawyers about his understanding of the law because they were trying to catch him out and uh, find some fault with him so that they could prosecute him. But Paul now comes with this gospel of grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it raises this obvious question for maybe the Jewish converts in the congregation, and no doubt the Gentile converts as well who've been hearing about this law. Uh, what about the law? 
And Paul has already suggested maybe a couple of questions that might have come into his readers' minds as he's talking about the law. Remember chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a hypothetical question that Paul is imagining his readers asking. Can we just sin that grace may abound? Or chapter 6, verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under the law or, but under grace? And the answer to both questions is, by no means. But why is it, no, why is it by no means? What's the answer to that? Um, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, so to unconverted Jews, I think the, the message of Paul is shocking. Um, and to the converts to Christ, they might be confused about the place of the law in the Christian life. And it wasn't just in Rome. It, of course, you see this issue coming up in a lot of Paul's letters where he had to address the, address the question, the Jew-Gentile question, in some way or other. And so Paul has to spend quite a bit of time just putting the law in its right setting and place. And, to, and in doing that, he is showing just how great the gospel really is. Now if you're sitting here thinking, well I'm not Jewish, uh, what's all this talk of the law got to do with me? Then I think maybe we need to think again. If you're someone who thinks that keeping a moral code is what gets you to heaven and that you have to reach a certain standard and there's a certain level of acceptable behavior uh, and that people below that level of behavior will be below the line and cast out from God and those above the line will be received by God, then my friend, you have not grasped the gospel, the nature of the gospel. And you have not grasped the true significance of Christ's sacrificial death. And you don't realize the power of Christ in the cross and in the resurrection that's able to set people free from the burden that is on their shoulders. The burden of the law. Or the burden of any kind of moral demand that we place upon ourselves. So it's very important that we understand how the law fits into the life of a believer. And that's what he is going to unfold in, in the rest of chapter 7. We're only looking at the first six verses uh, today. But what, he, what Paul does is he describes the relationship by an uh, analogy in verses 2 and 3. So he starts, strangely, he starts talking about a, a woman married to a man and the husband dies. Is she free to go and marry someone else? And there's a lot you can learn about marriage just through those two verses. But actually, it's not really the point. He's not really teaching about marriage. He's teaching about something else, something much more, uh, more profound. Um, according to, uh, so, so just follow the analogy for a moment. The, according to the law, only death can, dis, can uh, nullify a marriage or bring a marriage to an end. And anything else is adultery. And Paul explains that in verse 3. But the implication of this is that when the man dies, then the woman is free from her obligations and therefore is free to marry. Uh, again, that's quite a simple um, thing to state. But it's actually an illustration of a bigger principle that Paul wants to bring to our attention. Because he's talking about somebody who once wasn't a Christian, 
and now is a Christian. And he is using the example to explain what's happened to that person. Remember back in chapter 5, Paul describes a Christian, chapter 6, Paul describes a Christian as being united to Christ. United to Christ in his death, and now in his resurrection, and because Christ continues to live forever, you are, you are continuing to, you're continually united to Christ by faith. That's not a union that happens once, it's, it, it is continual. And in a sense, this is marriage language. Union with one to another. It's like when somebody becomes a Christian, they get married to Jesus Christ. Now, men, I know that that's quite a difficult thing to get our head around. But stick with me here. If you want to think about it corporately, we're all married to Christ as a corporate body. That's fine. That's how Ephesians 5 speaks of it. But in a sense, that union is like a marriage relationship. You're bound to Jesus Christ by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how you often talk about marriage, isn't it? You talk about two people forming a union with one another. And Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, now you are married to Christ. But before, you were married to the law. Before that, you were married to the law. And I think it's right to say that Paul is not really thinking about the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. But he's rather thinking about the moral aspects of the law. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. And I think, I think that's true. Because if you think back to how mankind is made in the image of God. And carrying the image of God. And as bearers of that image. What does Paul say about human beings in chapter 2? In verse 15, he talks about the conscience, even for unbelieving Gentiles. And he says, they, Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's saying there that all human beings have written on their hearts to some extent, albeit marred and and distorted, They have something of the law of God written into their hearts. They have a sense of right and wrong. They have a conscience. They know what's right and wrong. So all human beings have that sense. And what Paul is saying is that you were, before you were a Christian, you were bound to that law. It's like you were married to that law. You couldn't escape it. And it's like you had the law, God's commands, as a husband to you. What does the law do? Now, if you think that's a, if you think about that, isn't that a terrible situation to be in for all non-Christians? To have the law as your husband. Because what does the law do? The law makes demands on you. It calls you to perfect obedience. And that's the trouble with any law or moral code. It demands perfection from you. What does the law also do? It condemns you if you fail. It condemns those who fail to keep the law. So you spend your life racking up guilt and liability to punishment under the law. 
And you can't stop racking up the extent of your guilt because you continually sin. You can't do anything about that pile of judgments that is continually growing and growing and growing. And you're always going to be condemned by it. And you can never stop because you, if you're not in Christ, sin reigns. Sin reigns in your mortal body. And there is a, a power at work in this bad marriage that, is, uh, that everybody is in. There's a power at work that holds out the prospect of, uh, of life only going from bad to worse. That guilt is racked up and the judgment must fall. And all that comes is judgment. It's a terrible marriage for all human beings. Now here's the important question. How can somebody be free of that marriage to the law? How can you be freed from a bad marriage? And if you're not a Christian, how can you be freed from this particular situation? The only way is through a death in the marriage. And this is what Paul is getting at. That's what Paul has been talking about in chapter 6. He says that when you became a Christian... By faith, you are united to Jesus Christ in his death. You have undergone a death like his. This is something that is true of you. It's not that you're trying to die. It's not that you're trying to be more of a dead person to the, to the old life. It is a fact of life. You've been united to Christ and now you've been raised to life in newness of life. You're no longer the same person. And that's what we need to remember. Paul says, when you died with Christ on the cross, you died to the law. And you were freed from the law. You were freed from its condemnation. And you were freed from the controlling power that goes along with it. You were freed from the law. It's because of that broken body of Jesus that that legal hold that the law has upon you has ended. And now you're free to belong to another, to Jesus Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now isn't that what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together? When we share the bread and the wine, we remember his death and his resurrection. And we remember that we too have died and have been raised to life. And it's a glorious thing that our status is now totally different, that we are truly free. So we're married into a new marriage of freedom. And as we come to verses 5 and 6, uh, we see this uh, most wonderfully explained. Uh, Paul summarizes the problem in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is him summarizing the problem. And he's talking about the past, of course. Remember, he's talking about the past 
what you were before you were Christian. Before you live, you were living in the flesh. And here, flesh means our human nature corrupted with all its sin. It doesn't, now, it doesn't always mean that when you read flesh in Paul's writings. Uh, for example, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but it doesn't mean he was born into sin. So being descended according to the flesh doesn't, it means take on human nature. But there are times when Paul, and you need to determine from the context, there are times when Paul, when he's talking about flesh, he's talking about our flesh, our sinful flesh. And this is what he's talking about here. We were living in the flesh. And what does that entail? It entails being driven by the passions, the sinful passions of our hearts. And what Paul is showing us here, and this is, this is really important, is showing us the interplay between our flesh and our sinful passions and the law. So you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with the law? The law is good, isn't it? But there's something about the way that it shows the inability of the law and the uselessness of the law to save anyone. Because when the law comes up against the passions of the flesh, what happens? The law stimulates in the flesh more sinfulness. It's like the, the standard illustration of this. You tell a, tell a child not to press a button. What does the child want to do? Press the button. <laughs> What's it going to do? You tell somebody not to sin, human beings want to kind of try it out and see, well, what's the problem? Isn't that right? Don't do that, say your parents. I remember as a kid, my parents saying, don't do that, and the first thing I want to do is do that. But this is, this is the really important part. It's not just that sin can, our sin condemns us and the law condemns us. Actually, the law begins to interact with the flesh in an unhelpful way that causes us to sin more. That's the strange thing about it. And that's the shocking truth of the human condition left itself. That the remedy for the disease of sin that infects our beings is never simply the law. Imagine, just think that through. Isn't it true that there's so many people in the world, in our society, that think, you know, if there's all kinds of social problems and social evils, that all, what you need is a legal system that will fix it. But actually what the, what the gospel says is, actually the law will probably stimulate more sins. More evil. The more, more law cannot fix human beings. And Paul is going to say more about that in chapter 8. What he's saying is it just leads to the fruit of death. And this is a state that the non-Christian finds him or or herself in. The answer to your plight and my plight is not moral law or adopting a moral code. It simply makes things worse. And it's a trap, I think, that all people fall into. uh, That they try and think that moral code is going to fix things. The passions are just aroused and it makes it worse. So people are bound, are tied up and in this bad marriage if they're not Christian. I remember once hearing a a 20 minute talk, it must have been a podcast or something, 
um, by an American woman who's not a Christian, but a clever and successful writer. And she was explaining why it was that for years she had endured an abusive marriage. She fell madly in love with a man and was preparing to marry him, but just days before they were married, she had her first experience of how her husband had abusive tendencies. But she believed it was just a one-off and that, they were, uh, that when they were married, they could, you know, she would be able to change him. So she got married, but over time things got worse and worse, even to the point that he held a gun to her head several times, threatening to kill her. It's an appalling story. And while she loved this man, she also lived in constant fear of her life, especially at the thought of leaving. She was trapped in a bad marriage. And that's what it's like to be a non-Christian and to live married to the law. That there are forces at work in your life, in your fallen flesh, in the sinful passions that drive you that will always cause you to fall foul of the law. And all that the law can do is come at you with a big stick and beat you up and show you where you're going wrong. It can never save you. And the trouble is that the victims tend to still love the husband and think that, uh, you know, if I just keep going with this, things can change. But it never does. And there's so many people in such a bad marriage to the law who really believe they can change things through more law. It can never be. Friends, people need to be out of that bad marriage. They need to be saved by Jesus Christ. They need to be married to a wonderful husband instead. And for that to happen, they need to die to themselves. And look at what Paul says about this. Die to yourself and live by the Spirit. You see, when you become a Christian, you have the Spirit. And Paul mentions the Spirit in verse 6. He hasn't mentioned the Spirit very much. Though he has mentioned the Holy Spirit back in chapter 2. You remember what he said there? Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, this idea of being circumcised in your heart, to have your hearts changed by the power of the Holy Spirit as he applies that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He brings it into your life now today. He gives you new life. This is Paul's way of talking about new life in Christ. And he is, the Holy Spirit is able to do something that the written law cannot do. That he helps us to serve God in a new way. The old way of remaining in the flesh, uh, but looking to a written code, merely excites the passions and creates more sins. But when you have the Holy Spirit, he creates a new, new desires, new passions, new love for Jesus Christ. And he enables you to live a new life. Our hearts are changed. And the law is written into our hearts in a new way. Isn't that the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31? That God will send his spirit and he will write his law into your hearts. In a new way. And so instead of having this external written code that I can never keep up with. Suddenly there's something inside of me. 
That the Holy Spirit has worked in me a love for his law, a love for, that's, uh, for obedience, a desire to serve him. And we can live in a new way, gloriously, by this power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the Savior, Jesus Christ, who doesn't come to us with a big stick to beat us up like the law does. But rather comes to us with the most loving, wonderful, constant tenderness to his people. And he does everything he can to encourage his bride, the church, to flourish and bear good fruit. Glorious fruit of righteousness. Aren't these the best kind of marriages? Where the husband doesn't oppress his wife, but rather wants her to be a fruitful, beautiful woman. Those kind of marriages are only a pale reflection of the wonderful way in which Jesus Christ treats us. You know, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, not decidedly come out for Jesus Christ, let me say that you're in a bad marriage and you're in. A, in uh, to the law and to sin. And it may seem to you that that's okay. I'm just trundling along nicely for now. But you're like that woman who's entered into a bad marriage. And you find that you've got an abusive husband. And you need to be free of that. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Let your old self be killed on the cross with Christ. Rise again to new life in him. Enter into that most wonderful union with Christ that will endure to eternity, full of flourishing and fullness and fruitfulness. And for all of us who are here as Christians today, but at times perhaps you're feeling the guilt before God of your sins and how you never seem to be able to be free of certain kinds of sins and temptations and you fear the stick of the law pounding down upon you. The best way to describe you is that you are like the person who has been freed from that abusive marriage but all the memories of that past marriage, all the old patterns of thinking are still with you and you need to be free of them. And the answer to that is only to spend more time with your wonderful husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. To spend time with him, gazing upon him, meditating upon him. And becoming convinced of his great love for you. Look to Jesus. Think about Jesus. Learn about Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth who looks on his people with compassion and love who weeps for his people who won't break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick and he says to all come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest I will give you rest Amen let's pray Father we thank you for your great the great gospel of Jesus Christ, how profoundly that salvation has worked for us in giving us new life in Christ. And how we have a wonderful husband, our Savior Jesus, 
We pray you'd help us to meditate on him and thereby grow and become all the more fruitful for Jesus' sake. Amen.